And so, Lord, we ask, would you now send forth your word? Um, Would you send forth your Holy Spirit? In fact, as we study your word, your holy scriptures, your written word, and even as we do that, Lord, would you reveal to us your eternal word, Jesus Christ, in all his glory, in who he is and what it is that he has done for us, that we might leave this place transformed once again by your good news. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anybody remember where we were last week? This week we're looking at John chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. And as you can see at the top of your handout, I've titled it, The True Judge, King, and Faithful Witness. Um, And looking back at chapter 18, if we had to title it, and I actually don't remember what I put on my handout, I believe I put something to this extent, Jesus the Good Shepherd and the faithful witness. Do you remember why I said that about our passage from last week? Now I'm just sort of, why why would I say that when I looked, when we look at chapter 18, if you were here last week? Well, the good shepherd means that he's shepherding his flock, which are the disciples and the apostles. Mm -hmm. And he says, do you remember in chapter 10, he says, an I am statement, I am the good shepherd, and then he says something else about what he is. There's another I am statement in that chapter, and the other I am statement in that chapter is that he says, I am the door or the gate. And the idea surrounding that is that in ancient Palestine, oh, my gate is still here. Ancient Palestine, there was, um, when you were bringing the sheep in for the night, you would bring them into a sheepfold that had walls on three sides, but it didn't have a gate the way we have a gate today in many sheep pens or animal pens or things like that. And so what would happen is once the sheep were all inside, here, let me do a little sheep. Then there would be, the shepherd would be there and in order to protect the sheep at night in particular, which was a prime time for predators, of course, the shepherd himself would guard the opening, the third or the fourth wall. He'd guard that opening even by potentially laying down and sleeping there in the gap. He would lay down and sleep in the gap in order that the sheep in the sheepfold would be safe overnight. And so um, that idea of Jesus as the good shepherd and the gate He is also the entry point for all those who are a part of the flock that is the Christian church. So for all of us who believe in Jesus, we're here inside the sheep pen, and Jesus is protecting us um, in that spiritual protection. But one of the things that Jesus highlights in chapter 18, if you were to look at chapter 18, verse 9, what does Jesus say to the men who have come to arrest him there in the Garden of Gethsemane? Does anyone want to read that? This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Yes, I have not lost one of those you gave me. And so um, those who are given to Jesus are the flock, the flock of the Father. Remember in chapter 10, it it is said of this flock, um, Jesus says, my sheep know me, they hear my voice, they know my voice. So the sheep of Jesus are those who know his voice and follow him. Um, And there he is laying down his life for the sheep. And that's what he says is the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So there's that idea of protection 
um, provision, certainly we have that idea of provision in Psalm 23 when we look at the idea of the Lord is my shepherd. And I think Andrew's preaching on that on Sunday. Is that right? I decided that we had a sermon yesterday morning. Maybe not a sermon, but a lesson yesterday morning about the good shepherd. It was wonderful, wasn't it? That's that's great. I've heard some good things about it already. So I'm looking forward to Sunday. Um, he made a joke about it, and he ended up with Ba something another thing. Yeah, his email was very, it was really yeah. cute, utterly cute. Um, yeah, it was, it was funny. Um, so Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. And that's so that there's this idea of God as our shepherd who protects us, who provides for us. But ultimately, his love is made manifest to us in the fact that Jesus, the good shepherd, would lay down his life for the sheep. And that's what he does in John's account at the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, Jesus is not a shrinking violet. He's not in some corner of the garden hiding somewhere from the, um, from the men who came out with clubs and swords and lanterns to find him and arrest him. Rather, he pre- presents himself forward. He's very active and not passive. And John is very keen on showing to us that Jesus is not a victim of what is about to happen. Jesus is not a victim. He's actually in control. And um, even Jesus' death is a part of God's plan. And Jesus goes willingly. He is willingly going to lay down his life for the sheep. And so um, the reason why I drew this little sheepfold is because, remember, the um, Garden of Gethsemane was a walled garden. So there's only way, one way in and out. And once Jesus and the disciples had gotten in, then the guards came. And Jesus said repeatedly, not only did he come forward very boldly, but he says, um, let these men go in order to fulfill the, the word that he would not, um, that he would lay down his life for the sheep and not one of the ones that the father had entrusted to him would be harmed. And you see that later on in the same chapter when Jesus is before the high priest. The high priest questions him concerning his disciples and his teaching. And he, defle- he doesn't even address the issue of his disciples. He goes straight on to his teaching. And um, in some ways he's deflecting the attention of the religious authorities away from his disciples. So Jesus there um, in chapter 18 is showing himself very tangibly to be the good shepherd. And the way that John tells us about this, he's hearkening back to that idea of Jesus being the good shepherd. Um, And then in um, verses 20 through 23, when Jesus is before the high priest, he bears witness. He stands firm. He is not intimidated by the power, the temporal and worldly power of the religious leaders in Israel. He... um, he stands his ground, and he, his response is bold, so bold that he is struck across the face for it. Um, Jesus says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and the temple. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ah, that's bold. And why do you ask me? He is challenging. There he's challenging the high priest because... Um, under Jewish law, you could not be arrested and tried and convicted based on your own testimony. We still have that in um, in our legal system. You cannot bear witness against yourself. You need to have there need to be other witnesses as well. These other witnesses need to come forward. And so Jesus is challenging him. Um, Ask those who have heard me what heard what I said to them. They know what I said. You can't even come up with a witness 
who will accuse me, who will bear testimony against me. So he is a faithful witness, bearing witness to um, the fact that he is in control, essentially, that he is God himself. Um, and again, that theme will keep coming up. Another thing about chapter 18 and chapter 19 is that we're going to end 20, really, is that John now, we've had so much um, theology in John's gospel. We've heard so much about who Jesus is through his teaching, through those seven I am statements, through those long chapters in the upper room, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. We hear all these things about who Jesus is. And now we're going to see um, that his actions continue to point to his identity. And that's one of the things, that's one of the reasons why I titled this particular lesson the way I did and why last week could be titled The Good Shepherd and the Faithful Witness. All of the things that Jesus is now going to be doing or the things that will be done to him in these next two chapters are going to show us that Jesus is indeed who he said he is and who John is saying he is. He is the eternal word from above. He is God himself. And he, the um, truth of his divinity is made manifest to us through his identity in these other ways, that he is the good shepherd, that he is the true judge, that he is the king, the Messiah, that he is the faithful witness, all of those things. Um, so looking down, one of the things I've also put under context for you on your handout is that there are two Jewish trials from last week. Um, that we, there, um, throughout the four Gospels, we get a sense that there are three trials, sort of, before Jesus' death. There is an informal trial before Annas, which we see in John, and that's how we know that that happened. Then there is a more official trial before Caiaphas, and that had all 70 of the Sanhedrin there. And that was um, either probably so early in the morning that it felt like it was still night. Um, And then at 6 a.m., they brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate. And that's what we're going to look at today, that third component of this trial of Jesus, where he is before Pontius Pilate. So I've just, for your own edification, put um, the other three Gospels where they talk about the two Jewish trials. And in fact, they don't talk about the trial before Annas. They talk about the trial before Caiaphas. Did I talk to you last week about Annas and Caiaphas and why are there two high priests? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one is under Jewish law, they were high priests for life, and under Roman law, the Romans got to say, well, we're in control here because we are the political power that has conquered you, Jewish people. And so one of our rights as being those who have military and political power is that we are going to we're going to name those leaders, those native leaders that are in collusion with us, that are docile and submissive to us as the Roman overlords. Only those leaders will be leaders officially within, um, for the people of Israel. So if you remember that, um, there are these two political realities for um, the people of Israel during Jesus' lifetime under Roman rule. And that's going to lead me on to another point in looking at our context. And that other point is the idea of capital punishment. And this is the kind of thing, it's hard to talk about, because you sort of, when when we're talking about capital punishment, I I don't know, there are all sorts of political arguments we can have about it today. Um, When we talk about it here in scripture, it's sobering, because to talk about it rationally and from a left brain perspective, as Christians and believers, our hearts are still softened. We're not talking about it with hard hearts. 
um, we're just trying to understand rationally what are the historical circumstances that worked together to bring about Jesus's death. We know where Jesus's death fits into God's plan on a theological level. And we know about it from a personal level. He died for me. So that reality, he died for me, is true. And that theological reality, Jesus died so that the sins of all those who believe in him might be forgiven. Um, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. Those are the, um, that's the theological reality. That's the devotional reality for me personally. But then looking at it within a historical context is really helpful because it helps us remember that Jesus' death actually happened within time and within human history. And there were different forces that worked together to bring about his death. And understanding those forces can be really helpful. And that's one of the things we'll do together today as the Jewish leaders approach Pilate and clash with Pilate. You have to ask even the question, why would they go to Pilate with Jesus? Have they, uh, I'm just going to throw that out there. Do you remember, had have there been attempts on Jesus' life so far in this gospel that we've noticed? Yeah. Do you remember where? Yeah. Speaking, he walked away. I remember that he picked up rocks and he walked away from them. Yes. It was one of those miraculous. And he just walked away right through them. Yep, at the end of chapter 8, at the end of chapter 10. And the reason why they want to pick, why do they want to pick up rocks to stone him? Do you remember why? Because he was blasphemy. The penalty under the law for blasphemy is stoning. So in so um, in Deuteronomy, I believe it's in Deuteronomy. I haven't looked up that official. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Correlation between blasphemy and stoning. I don't remember where that actual law is in the Torah in the first five books of the Bible, but it's there. And so they were acting, in, they believed they were acting faithfully according to God's law. And remember what C.S. Lewis says about Jesus, that he is either a madman or he really is the son of God. His claims to divinity are so strong. There was a third option. C.S. Lewis had a third option too, didn't he? Madman. Oh, you don't think so? Or we're crazy. Or we're crazy. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, I know. But I, those are the ones that no, stuck out with me. I think it's just two. For some reason, I'm thinking it's three. Sorry, I hadn't planned on referencing C.S. Lewis. Excuse me for not being prepared on that one. Um, no, the, but Lewis is right in saying either Jesus is crazy and or he actually is the son of God. And so can you imagine from the point of disbelief, if you did, if you, and this is what I want us to do in these next couple of weeks when we're looking at the trial before Pontius Pilate. And this is, um, this passage I studied in depth. And so if I have too much information, just tell me to can it because I did super deep study on John 18:28 through 19:16 for my master's thesis. So I wrote this like 100-page paper on this and trying to weed out, well, what do I say and what do I not say is... There's so much to say, and I could talk forever about this passage, which might be mind-boggling when we read it, because it seems sort of pretty, pretty much up front. And, but the question is, why, from a historical perspective, did Jesus die? 
what was the motivation? And I, the way I approached it, now I'm starting to get into the content part on your um, handout, but the reason why, well, let me just first say capital punishment. Capital punishment in occupied Palestine was similar to the leadership structure in that the Romans said as part of their um, occupation of Palestine, they would not allow in any of their occupied countries, they would not allow the subservient people to have um, the right of the sword is what it's called. They would not be allowed to inflict capital punishment even on their own people, even if they had had that right, and they usually did according to their own native laws prior to the Romans' presence. Because the Romans said, this is our right. We have the right to punish to the point of death, but you do not. So all throughout the Mediterranean basin, wherever the Romans were, they alone had the right of the sword. And if you were a Roman citizen and you did something worthy of capital punishment, you would be executed through um, with the sword. Your head, sorry, this is sobering. Your head would be cut off with the sword, and that was seen as a swift and merciful death for a citizen. And if you were not a citizen, then you were crucified. And so what we see in Israel during Jesus's lifetime is that what the Romans did historically with the Jewish people, the Jewish people were sort of an anomaly throughout their occupied lands. And the reason for that is that the Jewish people were so monotheistic. Their religion was so different from the polytheism and the pantheons of gods that were worshipped in other cultures during um, under Roman rule. And so Rome, in, and they were so feisty about it, that Rome just knew it was in their best interest to turn a blind eye if, if the Jewish people felt the need to stone someone because of their blasphemy. And so you would see Rome turning a blind eye when, some, when there was kind of a mob stoning. And you see that happen in scripture, don't we? Where else in scripture do we see a mob stoning? Yeah, that's a really good example. That's a really good example. And there's another example, too, that's, and that is for adultery. There's another example that's specifically for blasphemy, and it's in the book of Acts, the first martyr, Stephen, remember? And Paul was standing there looking after everyone's coats, right, while Stephen was being stoned. So, and then we see the examples where Jesus is almost stoned, not just in John's Gospel, John 8, John 10, but also in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is there in his hometown, and he preaches this sermon in the synagogue, and at the end of his sermon, they liked it so much that they took him out to throw him off the cliff. And throw, <laughs> thank goodness that hasn't happened yet here. <laughs> um, but they took him off. They, the reason why they went to the edge of the cliff is if, if they threw someone off the cliff, that was comparable to stoning because there were stones on the bottom. The, again, it's sobering to even talk like this, but this is the way they thought. Well, that constitutes stoning. If you can't get the stones to the person, then you get the person to the stones and you throw them off the cliff. And what does it say in Luke chapter 4, but some similar things to what it says in John, Jesus walked through the midst of them unharmed because his time had not yet come. Jesus is not going to be the victim of a mob stoning, um, and he's not a victim at all. We're going to keep saying that throughout chapter 18 and 19. So capital punishment in occupied Palestine, the Romans reserved that right. However, they would turn the blind eye if the Jewish people felt the need to stone someone for blasphemy. And so then we have to ask ourselves, this is where we get into that first point under content, 
and this is one of the things that I looked at in my big, long, boring paper, was why, and I, want, I always want to ask the question, why? And when we look at scripture, it's so helpful to ask who, what, where, when, how, and then the big question is always why, right? Do you remember that? I mean, I think I learned that in maybe second grade when you start reading and reading longer books and chapter books and you have to answer these questions about them. You, you start to notice, and there's part of me that delights in that sort of sleuthing with scripture to say, oh, what's going on there? And I want to get out my magnifying glass like a good Nancy Drew. She was one of my heroines growing up. And imagine my delight when I realized as an adult that I have Titian hair, which was what, (laughs) excuse me, pardon my spitting, but Nancy Drew, they always said on the front cover of the book, her hair color would always change. Sometimes it was blonde, sometimes it was really red, sometimes it was curly. And the book spanned from like the 30s through to the 70s, so there were some really groovy outfits by the end of it. But I read religiously, I read every single Nancy Drew that I could get my hands on, which was all of them. And Nancy Drew is, you know, teen detective, right? So, um, and my short hair makes me feel even more like Nancy Drew. But so, again, that loveliness of being, oh, I have, I guess I have somewhat Titian hair. But the, um, so I, when I approach scripture, and I would encourage you to do this as well, and this is one of the things that I want us to do as a group, is to get out our magnifying glasses and to look at it and say, okay, who, what, where, when, and the big question is why. And so what we're going to see when we read our passage for today, and we're going to read it right now, and then we'll start, I'll, I'll dig into why. We have to ask ourselves, if stoning was the legal means for execution for blasphemy that was available to the people of Israel under Roman opposition and Roman rule, why are they going to Pilate with Jesus? Why bother? And that's one of the questions that Pilate's going to ask them. Why are you here? So let's look at that. We're going to read. We're going to read now. And we're going to spend two weeks on this. So you'll get. we'll get to look at this again after next week. Um, so... We're going to read beginning at verse 28 and going through to verse 40. And again, according to our custom, um, as you feel led, read a couple of verses and then let someone else read. Um, Then they led, and they is the Jewish um, leaders, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happens so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? 
Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What, what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be handed over to the king. But my kingship is not from this world. Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king, for this I was born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is out of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part. In a rebellion. No, that's a good tra- that's good translation. Um, mine says that he was a robber, and I like yours better, and I'll talk about that at the very end. But so we have again, I approached this when I wrote my paper with my theatrical eyes, and I looked at it in terms of setting. What do we have? We have a big palace where Pilate lives. Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem most of the time. Pilate lives in Caesarea Philippi which was more of the Roman capital for the area. But during a big festival, he would come down to Jerusalem just to make sure everything was peachy keen with the big mobs of Jews from all around the Mediterranean basin. They did not want any trouble, and there was always trouble. So so it was better for him and a whole legion of Roman soldiers to be there and be present just to keep things quiet. So here's Pilate. Um, I'm going to give him a little dress because they had the little dresses. And then he has sort of a helmet with a plume. Pilate is standing here, right? That's a sword, too. Why not? And the um, Jewish leaders come in. Come in, and what's the first thing that they're not going to do? 